If you're new to the Bible, it's to the very, very end, 1 John chapter 3, and uh, our verses are verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. Let me begin by reading those verses aloud. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We all want to change something about ourselves. Each and every one of us has something about ourselves that we don't like and that we want to see changed. Maybe it's how we spend our time. Maybe it's how we spend our money. Maybe it's how we talk uh, to other people or even talk to ourselves. Everyone wants to change in some particular way. Most of us want to change in several particular ways. But these kind of changes are basically superficial. Christians go deeper. We don't simply want to change. We want to repent. Since God is perfectly holy, we know that we must pursue holiness. We must strive to be holy as He is holy. We see sin in us. We see sin in our own hearts. And we're called to fight it, to get rid of it, to put it to death. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. That's repentance. Denying yourself, going after Jesus. Repentance is following him and living as he lived every day in honesty and in humility and in holiness. No Christian does this perfectly. You've already heard this morning, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Sin is inevitable. Sin is inevitable. Sin is inevitable, even in the Christian life. But we can use the inevitability of sin as an excuse to remain 
sinful. We tolerate a, a little greed, a little lust, a little pride, a little laziness, a little lying, and so on and so on. We find a way to carry some crosses and leave others on the side of the road. If I scuff up my wall at home, it's no big deal. That wall's not going to fall down. I can live with that scuff until I repaint it, if I ever repaint it. Sell the house. I can live with that scuff until I die. Sorry, Dina. But if a candle sets my curtain on fire, I better put it out. Or I'm going to lose the whole house quickly. The sin is like that. It is always dangerous, always in need of being addressed immediately. And my fear is that most, if not all of us, are dangerously comfortable with a little fire on our curtain, a little sin in our lives. And 1 John 3, 1 through 10 is a wake-up call. Remember why John wrote, he wants us to have fellowship with one another. He wants us ultimately to have fellowship with the triune God. He wants us to have joy. He wrote these words that we might have joy. He wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know that we know Jesus. But in 1 John 3, 1 through 10, he makes it abundantly clear that none of this, not the fellowship, not the joy, not the assurance, can be separated from a full throttled attempt to grow in holiness and to fight sin in our lives, tooth and nail. And so I have four questions from our passage, and I'm directing these questions primarily to Christians who are comfortable with a little sin in their lives. This passage should make you uncomfortable. It should lead you to repentance. It should lead you to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. And if you're not a Christian, well, I don't know what you're going to think by the time I get to the end of the sermon, but I certainly hope you know better what we mean when we say, take up your cross and follow Jesus. I hope you understand better what it means to, to be a Christian and what Christianity demands. All right, question number one. Question number one. And remember, speaking right now to Christians, as John was writing to Christians. Question number one, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Look again at verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, these are very encouraging words. John is writing to those who have remained committed to Christ. They've rejected the false teaching that we thought about last week. And John calls them children of God. Christian, before God saved you, as Alex prayed just a moment ago, you were his enemy. But now, because of what Christ has done for you, you are no longer God's enemy. More than that, you are God's friend. More than that, you are God's son or God's daughter. He has adopted you into his family. And this is because God loved you. 
It's because God loves you. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? You've been adopted because of the Father's love. And I can't explain this. Uh, I can't defend this. I can simply announce that if you are a Christian, it's because of God's love. At Ephesians 1.4, Paul put it this way. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love. He predestined you for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Right, Alex, as you prayed for us just a a moment ago. And all that means that God loves you, Christian, with a love that persists into eternity. See, John says, God loves you. And because God loves you, he knows you. The world does not love you and the world does not know you. The world doesn't understand what you care about. The world does not understand what you value. The the world does not understand what you love or why you love it. I mean, I recognize that the folks in Silicon Valley know an awful lot about you. I get that. But they don't know you. They They don't know why God means more to you than anything or anyone. They don't know you. And John says here, the reason... The world does not know us is that it did not know him. How can you expect the world to side with you? How can you expect the world to pass laws you value, to promote virtues you cherish, if the world doesn't know Christ? Of course, you are in the world. I get that. You shop at the same grocery stores You go to the same restaurants, you enjoy the same sports, but don't let those similarities fool you. You are a stranger to this world. You are an exile in this world. You are a sojourner in a foreign country. And here is why. Because God is your father. You know him. He knows you because he loves you. God is your father. And notice the church is your home. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. This is John speaking. Uh, He is not their heavenly father. He is their uh, father in the faith. Elsewhere in the letter, he refers to them as as children. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now. John calls them beloved because love is the union that binds John to them and and them to one another. They are loved by God. They're loved by John. They're loving one another. That's why at the end of our passage, he says, loving the brothers and the sisters is a mark of being a Christian. God adopts us as individuals, but we don't remain alone. We are adopted into a family. So you are not just a child of God As awesome as that is, you are part of the children of God. You're supposed to be part of a church family, part of brothers and sisters in Christ. Church membership is God's plan. It's God's design. I was talking with the the membership class this morning about this. Uh, Romans 12.4, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Members of one another. Membership is a biblical word. It's part of being the children of God. And so the question to those comfortable with a little sin in their lives, and as I say that for the third time, and I keep saying it, I, I need to raise my hand and say, guys, this is me. There are far too many moments in my life where I am resigned to having a little sin in my life. I, I don't pay much attention to the curtain on fire. John's writing to people like me. The question is this, do you know who you are? Do you realize you are a child of God with brothers and sisters in the faith? You have a father in heaven. You have a family on earth. You are loved more than you could possibly imagine. Now, why is this so important in your fight against sin? Because love is what motivates us to obey. Love motivates us toward holiness. Love leads us to carry our cross and follow Christ. An athlete will run further and faster for a coach he knows loves him. A student will study harder for a teacher she knows cares for her. A child will strive to please a parent that he knows would give up his life for him. My brothers and sisters, you will wage war against your sin when you are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you. With a never-ending and everlasting and unbreakable kind of love, you will strive to put sin to death when you believe that you are not a lone ranger fighting the enemy alone, but part of a church waging war against sin with one another. We pursue holiness because of love. Love from God, love from his family, the church. Who are you? Christian, you are loved. That's how John begins. Right? Question number two. Do you know what you will be? Do you know what you will be? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I hesitate, to say, I hesitate to say one of the disappointments of the Bible. The Bible does not disappoint. One of the realities of the Bible, it doesn't give us a lot of details about the Day of Judgment. And we're all so curious. We'd all, we'd all love to know a little bit more. The Bible doesn't give us many details about what exactly happens when Christ returns. But this much we know, Christians will be glorified. Christians will be glorified. Our, assuming we're dead... Our immaterial soul will meet our material body, whatever's left, and we will never be the same. We will be glorified with a new and glorious body. And John is looking to the future when he says, verse 2, what we will be has not yet appeared. It's, in other words, it's not yet been revealed. You've not yet seen what you will one day be. When Jesus appears... And we call that his second coming, his first coming, the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, his second coming, his appearance. On that day, 
John says, we shall be like him. We will be glorified. There are many other passages in the New Testament that help us understand this. One of the clearest is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, what will this glorious body be like? Inquiring minds want to know. It will be without sin. If you are a Christian, you will be absolutely holy and pure and righteous and just and kind and joyful and patient and peaceful and compassionate and forbearing in every possible way imaginable. And this will be the case for every child of God, every single child. You will never again be dominated by sin. You will never again give into temptation. Like a rock dislodged from the bottom of your sneaker, sin will be dislodged fully and forever from your heart when Christ returns. This is what it means to be like him. Him in holiness. Like him in faithfulness. Like him in joy and so forth. Now, I don't know the mechanics of this. I don't know exactly how this happens. I know it will happen. And I do think John gives us a little peek into the mechanics. Look at the end of verse 2. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. On that last day, when the Christian gazes at Jesus with eyes of faith, he, she will be changed. We will be changed. This is the future for the Christian. For the very first time in your life, you will have an unobstructed view of true goodness, true beauty, and true holiness. A few years ago, we went to New York and um, rented a hotel room. New York City, how exciting. Open up the curtains. Whoa, it's a brick wall. It's called an obstructed view. We have an obstructed view of God. We know what the word says about God, but we do not see him as he is. Right? Our, our minds are too corrupt to fully see God as he is. But a day will come when our view of the Lord will be unobstructed. And for the very first time in our lives, when we open the curtains, we are going to see true beauty and true goodness and holiness and kindness and love and all that sin that once raged in your heart will be vaporized by the sun of God just as the sun burns away the dew in the morning. When you see Christ in all his glory, you will be glorified. Now verse 3 is related, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I think John is, is trying to make it clear that 
this isn't just sort of a mechanical, like everyone who, who sees the judge is going to be glorified and, and, and enjoy peace with God forever. No, this is for those who hope in him. Right? This is for those who see God with eyes of faith. This is for the faithful. Those who see Christ are those who hope in Christ. Everyone who thus hopes, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Now, but if you might ask, if, if God is the one who changes us, if God is the one who glorifies us, if God is the one who, who changes us in such a way that, that, that sin is forever out of our lives and out of our heart, why does John say in verse 3 that, that we purify ourselves? Everyone who hopes, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Well, maybe this is what's going on. If you look at the sun for too long, uh, you will not be able to see. Right? Ultraviolet light will flood your retina, destroying your rods and your cones. And at that point, you are blind. And you can either say, the sun blinded me, which is true. The sun blinded you. You could also say, I have blinded myself, which is true, since you are the one who foolishly fixed your eyes upon the sun in the first place. John is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hope in him. And one day you will see him face to face. He will glorify you. He will purify you. But to the extent that you, Christian, are setting your hope on Christ, fixing your eyes on Christ, fighting for holiness putting sin to death, in that sense, by the grace of God, you are purifying yourself as he is pure. And so the question now to those comfortable with a little sin is, do you know what you will be? You will be glorified, holy, through and through on the day of God's judgment. Now, why is this answer so important for our fight against sin? Because your fight for holiness today depends upon your confidence in tomorrow. Your fight for holiness today depends upon your confidence in tomorrow. If you are not convinced of this glorious future where you will be like him, you will not be motivated to walk in the light now. You just won't. How could Jacob work for Laban so tirelessly for seven long years? We know, because Rachel was at the end of that dark tunnel. He was willing to wait. He was willing to work. How does an athlete wake up at dawn and run only to get back to the gym in the afternoon and do it all over again? Well, on one hand, I have no idea. <laughs> but on the other hand, right, their eye is on the prize. There is gold ahead. And so a Christian wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to carry my cross another day. I'm going to receive the trials of this world with joy. I am going to fight my sin and do all I can to glorify God with my body. And the Christian does this because he knows, because she knows that soon the battle will be over. That's what John is getting at here. Whatever suffering 
the day brings is nothing when held up against 2 Corinthians 4.17, the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what Paul says, Paul and John moving in the same direction. They're on the same page. There is an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison that awaits those who know the Lord. And with that in mind, you can endure what so very often feels like the pain of fighting for holiness, of putting sin to death, of closing your mouth when you want to berate someone, of quickly repenting when anger has welled up in your heart, of turning your eyes away when your flesh is drawn to see what it should not see, of putting the fork down when you're about to eat food you should not eat, picking up the fork when you must take another bite. How can you do these things which in the moment are so hard? John says, know who you will be like. Keep your eyes fixed on him. For everyone who thus hopes in him will purify themselves as he is pure. All right. Question number three. Do you know why Jesus came? Do you know why Jesus came? John gives us two answers. Look at verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. Now, Jesus came in order to take away sins. That's the first answer. But what is sin? Well, John tells us here, sin is lawlessness. And that means that sin is more than, than merely breaking a discreet, a particular law or command or stipulation. No, sin is lawlessness. It's the, the very objection to God and to God's authority. Sin is, by definition, treason against God, the creator of the universe, the one who ordered all of creation the way he saw fit. Sin is lawlessness. It's siding against God, shaking your fist at the creator, and being resolved to live life your own way. And maybe if you're not resolved to live life your own way every moment of the day, sin is lawlessness. And so those very moments that creep up against that decision point, that decision you have to make, am I going to give in to temptation or am I not? Right At that moment, that giving in is lawlessness. It's treason against God. It is a complete denial of his existence and of his glory and of his reality as the king, as the creator. And if sin is lawlessness, the necessary conclusion is that there's no such thing as a small sin. No such thing as a small sin. Now, admittedly, some sins are bigger than other sins. Okay, murdering anyone is worse than stealing a candy bar. Right? That's obvious. But theologically, from God's perspective, at the root, both sins are lawlessness. 
Both actions betray a denial of God, a lack of faith in his existence, and a complete disregard for holiness. And so in that sense, there is no such thing as a a small sin. So whether you commit adultery by sleeping with someone who is not your spouse or spend a few moments lingering on an inappropriate website, the root problem is the same. Sin is lawlessness. And one act of betrayal against him, however small that act may seem to you, is infinitely heinous because it is fundamentally the rejection of an infinitely holy God. There is no small sin. Why did Jesus come? First answer, he came to take away sins. He came to make a way of escape for sinners. He came to provide a solution to the biggest problem on the planet. How can a holy God be reconciled to an unholy people? To a people who again and again and again give into their flesh, give into their lust. How can God be reconciled to them? Jesus made a way. He came to take away sins, and he did it by dying on the cross. Jesus didn't simply load up a a dump truck with our sins and then drive it to the landfill, throw it into the ground, and then drive away, which is what someone might think of when they read, he took away sins. Oh, I get it. He's like the sin takeaway man. No, sin, no, Jesus loaded up himself. He loaded up himself with our lawlessness. He, in fact, became. He became lawlessness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, who, God the Father made him who knew no sin Right? There is, Jesus is righteous. He, he knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He loaded up himself with our sin that we might become righteousness. This is the gospel. So if verse 1 explains why we became children of God, because he loves us, see, see the love? If verse 1 explains why we became children of God, here we see how we became children of God. Jesus took away our sins by dying in our place. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Why did Jesus come? To take away sins. But there's a second answer. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, we tend to avoid the topic of the devil. It's come up a little bit here a couple weeks, you know, talking about the Antichrist and all. But we tend to avoid the topic of the devil. We tend to sanitize our Christian speech and scrub it of anything that might make us seem a little bit kooky. It's one thing for people to know we're religious. 
We go to church. We sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's another thing altogether if they think we believe in the devil. We believe in the devil. We acknowledge the devil's existence and his activity in the day-to-day affairs of everyday life. But we know that God not only has the devil on a leash, think of the book of Job, but even better than that, the works of the devil have been destroyed. His power over Christians has been unplugged. The devil is like a drop of poison diluted in the ocean of God's sovereign power. And this is why it is now possible for you to resist the devil. Because the works of the devil have been destroyed. I'm going to share two ways Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. I think there are more. I'm going to share just two. First, by taking away our sins. By taking away our sins. The devil did not want Jesus to forgive us. Now, don't mistake me. The devil wanted Jesus to go to the cross. The devil wanted Jesus executed. The devil wanted Jesus marked as a criminal. The devil wanted all of that, but the devil did not want what that accomplished. The devil did not want atonement to be made. The devil did not want God's creatures to be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. We were once slaves to sin and easy prey for the devil. In fact, we were once citizens of the devil's kingdom. Again, I get it, not language we're comfortable with. We don't like talking about the fact that before Christ, we lived in the domain of darkness. I don't even want to make light of it. That was our home, the domain of darkness. You can look up later, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. I mean, the, 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 the spiritual state of the unbeliever is more awful than we give much credit to. It's not just like, oh, before I was a Christian, I really had a hard time battling my anxiety. But now that I'm in Christ, I just feel so peaceful. No. It's like before I was a Christian, I was enslaved to my sin and on the road to hell and a child of the devil. And now, praise God, Christ is my master and I one day am going to be with him forever and ever. And even now, he's with me. Much different than God just tidying up the room of your spiritual life. The devil did not want Jesus to take away our sins. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification, he destroyed the works of the devil. In Colossians 3.15, Paul says that through the work of the cross, through the work of the cross, you don't need to turn there, but Colossians 3.15, He said, through that work, God, and I quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities. The rulers and authorities. There he's talking about spiritual rulers. He's talking about demonic forces. Through the cross, Paul says God disarmed them. They were loaded up with every conceivable weapon to attack, and they were disarmed. When Jesus died and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So we've got some different images there. On one hand, they were disarmed. On the other hand, they were triumphed over. So they were triumphed over by being disarmed 
You know, in modern-day vernacular, Jesus dunked on them. They were proven foolish and ultimately powerless. On the cross, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by taking away our sins. And now the devil lives with the reality that there is a church against whom the gates of hell will never prevail. How else did the devil, how else did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Let me say second, by silencing our accuser. By silencing our accuser. Satan loves to accuse believers. He loves to remind you of past wrongs with the hope that you will feel disqualified from future grace. The devil loves to belittle you for sins you committed in the past. He wants you to think there is no way Christ could have paid for that. That's beyond the bounds. The devil loves to accuse you of being so horribly wicked you were outside. Even the, the remotest possibility of God loving you. The devil loves to accuse. And when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification, he destroyed the works of the devil. He destroyed the accusatory work of the devil. Now John put it this way in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Christian, you do not have to listen to the lies of the devil, saying that you cannot be holy, saying that you cannot resist that temptation. In Christ, you have conquered him because Christ destroyed the works of the devil, which, by the way, is why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, John even says, and you have overcome the evil one. The works of the devil have been destroyed. The accusatory power of the devil against God's children is no more. So the question to those comfortable with the little sin is, do you know why Christ came? The answer is he came to take away your sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to cleanse your conscience. He came to remove your guilt. Psalm 103 Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. This is what Jesus did. This is why he came. Now, why is this answer so important when it comes to your fight against sin? Because you'll never take up your cross unless you're convinced that the victory has already been won. You'll never take up your cross. That's the fight for holiness. That's the saying no. That's the resisting temptation. Right? You'll never take up your cross unless you're convinced the victory's already been won. Now, most of you know, because I say this every year, I remind you why I dropped macroeconomics in college. 
Professor Ellis. He gave me homework on the first day of class. He gave me two or three weeks to complete it. I completed it. He looked over it. And he wrote these words on the top of the page, words that are forever seared into my memory, especially as I repeat them to you every so often. If this work is evidence of your ability, I highly doubt you will be able to pass this class. For real. Thankfully, there was still time to drop the class. Class dropped. Not a great example of perseverance, admittedly. I had no confidence. I had no confidence. Looking back at my past, looking back at various mathematical abilities that had not been properly nurtured in my young mind, I had no confidence in my ability to successfully complete that course. Unless you are confident Jesus has defeated sin, not your own ability, but unless you're confident in what Jesus did, you will not wage war against your sin. You won't do the hard work of putting sin to death because you aren't really convinced Jesus paid it all. You'll doubt you have the power to say no to every one of the sins that come your way. Not to your, no, you won't say no to your greed or to your lust or to your envy or to your pride. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. The answer is the cross. Christian, because of what Jesus did, there is no sin you have to obey. Because of what Jesus did, there is no sin you have to obey. In 2 Chronicles 20, Israel faced a, a battle with just horrendous odds. I mean, humanly speaking, there is no way little Israel was going to win this battle. And they were really afraid. And they didn't even want to pick up their swords. And in that moment, God sent them a prophet. And that prophet said to them, do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. So the battle belonged to the Lord, right? The battle, he says, is not yours, but God's. But then he says, tomorrow, go down against them. I would be tempted to say, well, wait a sec. If the battle belongs to the Lord, let him fight it. I'll just stay in my tent. No, the battle belongs to the Lord. Tomorrow, go down against them. Right, they still had to go down and fight, but now they could overcome their fear and their sin and their lack of trust because they believed that the battle belonged to the Lord, and in that sense, the battle had already been won. And so the same is true for the Christian. You can fight every temptation and put to death every sin because the battle belongs to the Lord. It doesn't fundamentally belong to you. He proved it on the cross when he took away our sins and defeated the works of the devil. Now, in one sense, these three questions have all been making a similar point. And I do think they're of some, I think, they are of practical value for you as a Christian. I mean, unless you don't struggle with sin, in which case you should totally be preaching. You know, when you're, when you're about to sin... Christian, do you think God loves me? Like before you sin, does God come into your mind? Do I remember that I'm a child of God? 
You think God. When you're about to sin, and you know what I'm talking about, that point when your mouth is shut, but it's about to be opened, right? The, the window has popped up, but it's about to be clicked open. Whatever, whatever it is. I mean, I'm picking on, you know, speech and lust. But, but whatever it is, at that moment, do you, do, you, do, you, do you think to yourself, it's not just that there's a God, but he loves me. And I'm his child. He's adopted me into his family. Does that enter your mind? Uh, John is saying it should. When, when you're at that moment, when you are about to um, dive into the cesspool of pride, and you know that moment when you're, you're, you're crossing into, you know, for, for a moment, maybe you're a little flattered by what someone says, but now your sinful heart is about to take that and turn it into full full-fledged pride, at that moment, do you stop and remember who you will one day be? That you will one day be like him. That one day you will see the Lord face to face and all the sin in your heart is going to be rooted out. Sin that Christ paid for, it's going to be, it's going to be rooted out and you're going to you're going to be what you've never been before, sinless. So when you're about to sin, do you think, God, God loves me, I'm his child. Do you think, I have a future that I need to fight for. And then do you think, and there's the cross. Jesus died for me. I mean, that's how he secured my future. The Father loves me, and he secured my future through the sacrifice of his only begotten son. So before you sin, because I want us to grow in holiness and because I want to grow in holiness, are you, are you thinking, Christian, about God's love for you? Are you thinking about your future? And are you thinking about the cross? And if you're willing to stop and think and remember those three things, by God's grace, you don't have to give in to the temptation. All right, so that was the first three points. We're not done. Jesus, John demands I ask you one more question. Question number four, do you know what is at stake? Do you know what is at stake? None of us will be perfectly holy this side of heaven. But if you allow that truth, the truth of the inevitability of sin, to dominate your thoughts, if you rest in the fact that since every Christian sins, you too will sin, You'll never take the sword out and fight. The truth of the inevitability of sin will dull you to your own sin, minimizing your own hatred of sin, and lead you to lie on the couch watching Netflix while your curtain is burning. One day a drunk man passed C.H. Spurgeon on the streets of London, recognized him as the great preacher of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and yelled out to Spurgeon, Hey, pastor, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon, not missing a beat, yelled back, Well, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. If you let the small fires burn, John says you're not one of the Lord's. The question is, do you know what is at stake? The answer is eternal life. So let's quickly work through these several verses if you let the small fires burn, you are homeless. You are homeless. Look at verse 6. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If you keep on sinning, that is, if you are someone who lets sin burn in your life without jumping on it to put out the flame, if that's you, you are not resting in Christ. You are not looking to Christ. You are not abiding in Christ. You are not trusting in Christ. He is not your home. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you really are of the Lord, if you really are born again, it's not just that you're living in God, but that God is living in you, right? That God's seed is taken by most people to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. So you're, you're in the Lord. The Lord is in you. And if that's true, there's no way sin can have a foothold in your life. There's no way. But if you let those small fires burn, if you give in to the sin, you aren't abiding in Christ. The Spirit of Christ is not abiding in you. And I call that being homeless. If you let the small fires burn, you are blind. Look at verse 6. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those who truly know Jesus, those who see him for whom he really is with eyes of faith, they obey him. They resist temptation. They fight it. But if you let that curtain stay aflame, it's because you are blind to the Lord. You're deaf to the gospel. You're hard-hearted. You don't just need a good Bible study. You don't just need a good sermon. You need to get saved. You need to be born again. Like if you are enslaved to your sin, you don't need a pep talk. You need salvation. You need to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Maybe for the first time in your life. Otherwise you're blind and deaf. If you let the small fires burn, you're homeless. If you let the small fires burn, you're blind. If you let the small fires burn, you are deceived. Look at verse 7. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. So what lies have you told yourself so that you could be comfortable in your sin? If God didn't expect me to give in from time to time, he wouldn't have given me such strong desires. That's a lie. I've got, I've got to give in to a little sin if I'm going to reach a fallen world. That's a lie. It's okay to give in to just this sin because I know God is gracious and he's going to forgive me. That's maybe the most insidious lie of them all. It's a half-truth. It's true after the fact, not so true before the fact. If that's how you're thinking before the sin, you should have no hope that God is going to save you. It's a lie. Brothers and sisters, these are lies. And if you're using these lies like this to comfort you in your sin, you're deceived. And then on this note, how about this way to end a sermon? And oh, by the way, if you let the small fires burn, you're a child of the devil. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, if you are offended by this language, you've got to take it up with Jesus. Because in John chapter 8, verse 44, it is the Lord of lords who said to those who rejected him, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer 
from the beginning. And John is practically quoting Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be Switzerland. You cannot be neutral. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There is no in-between. There's no riding on the fence. Either you are in God's family or you are in the devil's family. Either you're following Jesus or you're following the devil. So when I ask, do you know what's at stake, I'm arguing holiness isn't an option for the Christian. You must pursue it. You must pursue Christ, the Son of God. Unless Christ is your life, unless you are living for him, you are homeless and blind and deceived and of the devil himself. One day, a man came up to Jesus. He was a wealthy man, and he wanted to know how to get eternal life. And he asked Jesus, how can I get it? How can I find it? And Jesus told them that he had to keep the commandments to be holy. Now, Jesus knew that holiness doesn't make you a Christian, but Jesus wanted to bring to the surface what was in this man's heart, what this man loved more than he loved God. He wanted to reveal what was in this man and whether this man was willing to take up his cross and follow Jesus. And Jesus knew the man's heart and like an expert boxer knows exactly where to punch, Jesus knew exactly what to say. And so he said to the man, go, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And you know the, the, the text says, the man went away sad because he had many possessions. As I thought about our passage, this man came to my mind. Is there anyone like him here today? Jesus demands everything. He requires you love God more than you love life itself. You cannot keep your sin and your Savior. You have to choose. Now, in a moment, the Dunbars are going to come and be baptized. They're going to share their testimony first. They're going to explain what led them to take up their cross and follow Christ. And we're excited about that, Tim and Hannah. But there are questions for you to think about, even as you witness this baptism this morning. Here's the first question. How have you taken up your cross and followed Christ? Notice I didn't ask, have you taken up your cross and followed Christ? I asked, how? Can you answer that question, how? And in light of Jesus' words from the start of the sermon in Luke 9.23, in light of that word daily, here's my second question. How are you, how are you taking up your cross and following Christ each and every day? Heavenly Father, we come before you and after a reminder like this of the necessity of holiness, we feel acutely our weakness and our flesh and our sinfulness and we want to fly to Christ so quickly to know the assurance that comes from your love and the future you have for us and the price 
Christ paid to save us. Would you prepare our hearts to see Tim and Hannah baptized? Would you prepare our hearts to reflect this week upon our own carrying of our cross as we sing these words? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.